7.20 ABC Perth is a proud supporter of the Perth Writers' Festival. As podcast partner, we're pleased to be able to bring you a selection of the sessions from the festival, including this one with two master storytellers, Patrick Gale and Sally Vickers, during which they look at the therapeutic benefits of writing fiction and the impulses that lie behind their respective creative drives. Ladies and gentlemen, what a great way to spend a heatwave. Thank you so much for coming out from beneath your air conditioners or your ice baths or wherever you've been um, hiding away today and uh, hearing two of our favourite British authors, Patrick Gale and Sally Vickers, who have swapped one of Britain's coldest winters for one of Perth's hottest summers um, and to come here to the Writers' Festival and let us into their private thoughts about the therapeutic side and other impulses behind their very public writing. I know today they've already had a very warm Perth welcome, but would you give them another one? My name's Geraldine Mellett, and I'm really looking forward to the discussion. We're talking about the impulses behind writing, and it's fairly common to hear that most writers say they started young, and the, but the impulse stayed with them even as they moved through a myriad of jobs before they became full-time writers, and Sally and Patrick both have that in common. Sally was talent-spotted, if you like, at nine years old by a very savvy primary school teacher, and she was put with one other girl into a class by themselves and told that they were too advanced for the other group and that they should sit there and write stories, which they did. And she actually said she called her story A Door Into Time and that, in fact, the theme of that has cropped up again and again in a number of her later novels. Patrick was a little boy who filled a truckload of exercise books on his own account, and I think his mother still has them, doesn't he? I fear she, she? does, yes. <laughs> um, But it was at school again that a teacher presented him with a black-and-white photo of a man and said, write about that, and he did, and the teacher was so impressed it went into the school magazine. Patrick wanted to be a performer. He went to music school to be a concert pianist. Then the acting bug took over, but eventually writing one out and... Um, Temping and what he calls low-grade journalism, that's another story, paid the bills while he wrote, um, but he was published at a fairly young age. Sally, on her writing trajectory, was an office cleaner, an artist's model, a teacher of children with special needs and a psychoanalyst, um, a profession that makes the therapeutic part of writing in our discussion tonight very topical. We're going to use Sally and Patrick's latest novels as kind of case studies in this discussion. Dancing Backwards by Sally and The Whole Day Through by Patrick. And rather than me attempting to summarise them now for you, um, we'll get the authors to tell us a little about them. Um, Patrick, you told me, you wrote to me and you said that you begin the process of each novel with a character in a bad or unhealthy situation, sometimes a whole family in one, and then you follow your nose to ferret out how they got in that position and how they could be led out of it. So when you're thinking about Laura Lewis, the main character, and the things that confront her, tell us where you began with all of that. I, well, I began with... Um, some of my books begin with an image. Um, my mother, like Laura's mother, has profound osteoporosis. And before she put herself into a home, which she did a few years ago, I, I turned up to visit her in her little house in Winchester and found her absolutely immobilised, sitting in a large rosemary bush in the back garden. And she'd been there for a few hours, and she was completely calm. Um, she just said, oh, I, it's not, you know, I, I can see that those roses need pruning. And she <laughs> hadn't been wasting her time. Um, and I, I, I borrowed this as the first, the starting point of my book, in which Laura finds her mother 
stark naked because her mother is a naturist, um, immobilized in a, in a leptospermum bush. <clears throat> and it, it, it sort of grew from there, but it was also a, a way of me working out my fears about my mother, I think, and my fears about our mutual dependency that would, I was worried was going to grow as she got more and more dependent on me. And because Laura, as an only child, really doesn't particularly have a choice, does she, if she wants to be the good not, daughter? Not really, not really. She lives in Paris and she has to give that up to come to Winchester and, and look after her mother. And it's while she's there that she runs into this, the love of her life, really, the, the man she had an affair with when they were both students 20 years before. So in, in the course of the book, which takes just a single day, we, we see the course of that, uh, both, both the relationship they have in the present day, their second relationship, and their first relationship. But spinning off from that are lots of memories, um, both of their memories about their childhoods, about their strange and rather, they both have very driven mothers. Um, I'm, rather, <laughs> I'm rather keen on driven mothers. <laughs> I noticed in the back of your book you said that um, having a novelist in the family is somewhat of a trial, so I suppose we should ask your mother about that one. Um, th what's common to both your books is that the past and the present coexist alongside. Um, Sally, I wonder if you would compare how you came up with Violet Hetherington and her attempts to dance backwards. Well, uh, uh, Violet Hetherington actually comes from my second novel, Instances of the Number Three. Um, in Instances of the Number Three, there is um, a brief episode in which the heroine of that novel gives a book of poems to a man she's having an affair with. And I quote one of the poems by this poet, H.V. Sinjin. And I found that I was getting uh, emails and letters from people who were saying, who is this H.V. Sinjin? Uh, we can't seem to find her. <laughs> and then one day I got a letter from a girl doing a PhD in America who um, was writing a thesis on the modern contemporary female poet and felt she really wanted more information about H.V. Sinjin. <laughs> and um, I thought... Google hadn't helped her. <laughs> Google had not helped her. She thought she was really obscure. And um, so I found I had a character because, of course, H.V. Sinjin had not formally any existence at all. So she arose in an odd way out of my readership's curiosity about this character whom I had placed rather enigmatically in another novel. Um, but that said, I suppose she... I have had the experience several times that Vi is having, on, you know, as the book unfolds, of crossing the Atlantic. I must say, when I was doing it, I was doing it as a semi-paid um, aspect of the um, cruise ship line. I was one of the um, minor celebrities who appear <laughs> in my book <laughs> and who, who perform um, in return for, for a, a fairly comfortable passage to America. So I had actually made that journey myself, and I had found that... Uh, I'm a great fan of Joseph Conrad, and I love the sea, and I found that being at sea... And travelling one way gave me uh, the opportunity to reflect in a particularly kind of um, insulated way. Because at sea you are insulated from the ordinary interruptions of everyday life. And it gave me an opportunity to reflect and mull over vari various elements in my own life. So I gave this character out of my past novel the kind of experiences that I have had myself... Um, I don't know, that doesn't say much about therapy, does it? Except, <laughs> except that the sea is very therapeutic. <laughs> but in, no, it does. Um, that really leads to the next point about the, the therapeutic aspect. You said 
your mother has osteoporosis. Mm. You've had some of those experiences yourself. Obviously, you're using that along the way. What was it like to explore? Was it your fears, your worries, some things which had actually happened? Well, I do it shamelessly. Um, I think when I hit 40, I thought, oh, I'm going to die soon, so I might (laughs) as well start using my own life and stop making things up. And, And there's something... I find profoundly therapeutic about it because what you're doing is you, you take elements from your own life and your relations and your relationships, but you transform it, you transmute it while exploring it. And I think what I hope to do each time is to get at the emotional truth while clouding the historical truth with fiction. Um, so in my earlier novel, Rough Music, I set out to find out for myself what, what made my parents' marriage tick because they were such a mystery to me. Um, and so I had two characters who were absolutely them, and they both admitted, they, they recognised themselves, and yet the things that happened to them were made up. Um, and apparently I, it worked. My mother said I, I had got at some of the truth, anyway. Um. One of the things that's um, common to both is sort of reflecting on past relationships, and in yours it's, well, it's both her marriage and her friendship. In yours it's that first love relationship. Um, were you able to use some of your own material in that as well? Yeah, I, I tend not to use my own life, or rather I use it rather sparingly. Um, I tend to let the character evolve, and then I find out what particular catastrophe it is that has set them off on this particular journey. I think it's true that all my characters suffer some kind of trauma, loss, catastrophe. Um, there are elements of my own experience, private experience. I think increasingly, actually, as the books go on. I mean, probably Miss Garnet's Angel, my first novel, has the least of me. And there are ways in which Dancing Backwards has the most of me. I mean, for example, Vi went to Cambridge where she, her best friend was Edwin, the poet whom she's crossing the Atlantic to meet again um, after many, many years of, of f- falling out of contact with him because of something she believes she's done to him. Um, we find out that what she's done is is really quite minor compared to what he's done to her, but that's a revelation that comes at the end of the book. And at the same time, she's contemplating a disastrous relationship she's she's made. And it's not, I may say, that I have not made disastrous relationships, <laughs> nor indeed that I've not let down dear friends. But um, I, I, I think we all bring something of our own experience. Well, don't you find that if you inject just a little seed of yourself into a character, it gives you a confidence in the bits of the character that you make up? If there's one thing that they've experienced which you've experienced... It, yeah, you it see, I think all my characters are based on myself. Mm. Well, I think that's, that's the honest approach. I think all my characters are based on myself, of you. but not my life. Because it seems to me part of the, the, the fizz you get from writing fiction is this ventriloquism, it's this chance to try on other lives for size and on one, one hand you're making it up and you're trying on other lives but you're also projecting yourself into them and so seeing well how would I be if I was a murderer how would I be yeah, if I was a mother yeah. of and six? is there a kind and of a delight in doing that because you can take yes, it to the yes, end of you don't have to be yeah. careful see, I, like in real life I have this pet theory that most most novelists are very mildly mentally ill so, so we <laughs> no I mean seriously because it's amazing how often when you quiz a novelist it'd about, be a very interesting PhD well no I, I think most of us had some kind of a trauma um, yeah, usually usually that. when we were pretty young and I can pinpoint mine absolutely you know I was 10 and it's in, that was the year when I'd been a talented little writer up till then but that was the year when suddenly fiction became my my glass shield 
and it enabled me to, uh, to protect myself and, I, and to project a version of myself that wasn't me and also to, um, I, think, I think, to interact safely with the things that frighten me. And as an adult, I, I, I can see, and I, I still do, you, you feel yourself quite often forgetting to live because you're so busy looking through the glass. Because you're observing. I, I, I yeah. think I disagree yeah. with that. Yeah. I think that I write in order to live those different lives. You know, I don't, I th- I don't, I don't regard that as less real than the lived life. I think it's... Well, it's ma- real in here. Yeah, I think it's realer in some ways, but that's my form of mental illness. <laughs> no, I agree with you, actually. I mean, first and of all... Your, your imaginary friends have to be more real to you than your real ones. But my imaginary characters are more real to me than, mm. my, than my, my real friends. But, you know, I mean, when I worked as a psychoanalyst, I used to say to my trainees, you really have to be mad to do this profession. And so it was a very good training for being a novelist because there is an element of multiple personality about it. You are evolving personalities... But I, I, I don't think it's a glass shield, actually. I think it's... Um, I, I would say it's a form of life. <laughs> well, so your secondary life, well, true. I think you do certainly have to have a... If you live with somebody, they have to be prepared to put up with these periods when you, you are less than present because these imaginary lives are much more to you. Than, yeah, than and the, chari- and the characters you're writing about are you know, with you in the bath... On, on the lavatory, <laughs> in the bus, <laughs> in ways that you hope the people you live with will not be. Well, <laughs> and, and I would really worry if I was starting a novel and I hadn't reached that stage, because if they're not that real to you, then they won't be that real to your readers. Which what, what fascinates me is I think this, this strange, neur- uh, this slightly neurotic approach, this, this impulse to write fiction, is only a hair's breadth away from the same impulse that drives all these people to read fiction. I think it's a circular process, and I think I think it presses similar buttons. Um, oh, undoubtedly. Because because the, the impulse to lose yourself in a fiction and to to feel the pain. I mean, this afternoon I was reading this um, lovely novel by Miranda Endicott, um, and I you know, I started crying. And I think you know this is ridiculous. It's only a book. But Good it, to a fault. Yes. 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 But it's it's deeply moving at one point. Well, at several points, um, and it's quite an odd thing to do to want to. to to experience these emotions that aren't real, well, that their basis isn't real. When you're writing your books, and in particular the two that we're talking about tonight, what were you moved by when you were actually writing it? What parts? For me, it was about a, it was aging. I thought I was writing a love story, and I realised actually it's a book about mortality, and and regret and loss. It's all those. It's all the, the kind of underbelly of love. That, that got me, and that, that's where the, there's so often, I mean, and I'm sure Sally can back this up or maybe won't, <laughs> um, there's often a minor character in your novel who, who threatens to take over, and in my novel it was the mother who, this... Professor Jellicoe. Professor Jellicoe, who is, who is this naturist, and I, I found that her, a, this image of her ageing body kind of parading around the house and garden was alongside this, this rather desperate love story. Um, it was like a sort of memento mori this big skull in the middle of it. It was like she was a big enough character to have had her own, her own book as well, because yes. she was quite fascinating. Oh, mm. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for me, it was the, uh, the losing of the essential voice. Um, there's a, the principal character in Dancing Backwards is a character who's called The Voice, and this is the kind of Jiminy Cricket voice of conscience, consciousness, call it what you like, who'd all the way along, at I hope not too many points, punctuates moments of choice for Vi, Violet, my heroine. Uh, 
and, and more or less tells her that she shouldn't do what she's about to do. And she, so, so it's a question of uh, what, what it brought home to me most powerfully, this book, is the ways in which we betray ourselves and our own best interests. I particularly liked that because she would go against the voice at almost every turn and yet yeah. it was loud in her head. Do you have a piece there I do, that yeah. you can read that, that points to that? Um, yeah, I, I, this is a, the, the, there's a disastrous relationship that she's reflecting on as she crosses the Atlantic. As a much older woman, this is a relationship she embarked on uh, just after she finished as a rather uh, vulnerable student um, many years ago. And um, she marries a man whose name is Bruno. She's an aspiring poet, quite a successful one. He, too, um, claims to be a poet, um, but has not had any kind of success at all. And essentially, it's, um, it's a very destructive relationship she gets into. And part of the point of the book is for her to fathom why she's got into it. But this is where we hear the voice. Vi didn't quite know what was happening, but she knew she was scared. Her heart was not exactly banging, but it seemed to be giving out a low, juddering moan not unlike the sound which had issued from the chain on the bicycle she had jettisoned in Cambridge. They aren't that good, she said miserably. She and Bruno were walking, and more like marching, home from the park. Bruno had instigated a fitness regime which entailed walks after meals. I didn't say anything about it because I was sure they would turn them down and then you'd be cross. It was one of the notable things about him his habit of getting cross on her behalf. You should have told me. They were crossing Moscow Road by St. Sophia's, the Greek Orthodox Church. Traffic had been diverted from the Bayswater Road, and a stream of vehicles thundered past, among them a large truck carrying McVitty digestive biscuits. A vision of putting an end to all this by stepping out in front of the biscuit lorry flashed across Vi's mind. You should have told me, Bruno said again. I am a poet, too, after all. Yes, I agreed. She didn't see the relevance of this, but what could be gained by questioning it? As people do when feeling hopeless, she repeated herself, they aren't that good, the poems. That's not the point. The point is you didn't discuss this with me. I am a figure in this arena. As a simple act of courtesy, bear in mind that the editor is a personal friend. You should have discussed the matter accordingly. He seemed to have become someone who spoke like a 19th century bureaucrat. Listen, she said, I didn't think that's all. It wasn't directed against you. I just did it. But you should have done. You should have thought. What do you think I feel, knowing that you are to have your poems published by the publishing house where I'm to be published too? How could I know that, she thought. You never told me. And the editor is not a personal friend of yours. He's an acquaintance of Tessa Carfield's cousin. I have to ask why you've done this. Now he had turned into an investigative journalist or policeman. You, of all people. Listen, she said again. I'm sorry, really. I didn't mean to make you angry. I'm not angry. Clearly, that was not the case. I didn't mean to hurt you then. I'm not hurt. They had reached the flat and were up the stairs and into the kitchen before she spoke again. I was going to talk to you about the book. She lit the gas, clumsily filling the kettle. Bruno, please. Yes, Vi. Don't be like this. 
How do you expect me to be? Well, not like this. I wasn't aware that you had the right to dictate my responses. Of course not. Vi, you must act as you choose. But if you choose to act in certain ways, there are going to be consequences. He seemed to have metamorphosed into counsel for the prosecution. <laughs> You're an adult woman, you know that. Vi, who did not feel at all adult at that moment, in fact quite the opposite, tried her hardest not to cry. Desperate to smoke, but unable to lay her hands for the moment on the matches, she lit a cigarette from the gas ring so that her hair caught in the flame and flared up dangerously. Bruno stood there, watching her rinse it under the cold tap. Sink or swim, remarked a voice. Bruno, you smoke too much. Bruno, yes. The prosecuting counsel had been promoted to a high court judge about to pronounce sentence. Please, let's not quarrel. The judge's face wavered, decomposed, and then reorganized itself into an interrogation officer who looked into Vi's face with terrifying calm. I have no idea what you mean. I mean this. This is not a quarrel, Vi. It's a statement of feeling. Bereft of words, she stood there, water from her wet hair running into the tears which dripped from her chin. Please don't manipulate me, Vi, said the interrogation officer. He spoke more in sorrow than in anger. You know how I dislike tears. But of course I'm upset to have upset you. Don't grovel, said the voice. Then why do it? Why do what? The kitchen smelled horribly of singed hair. Upset me. You know what you were doing. She didn't. Or rather, she did. But she didn't know why it mattered. No, that wasn't true either. She understood that it mattered, but for reasons that would not have mattered to her. And this frightened her. I love you she announced bleakly. Fool, said the voice. And I love you, Vi. Bruno's face had shifted fractionally from interrogation officer to dispassionate surgeon. Liars, both of you, remarked the voice. So, if we love each other, Vi had gone across and was squeezing his shoulder. He placed a big enfolding hand over the crown of her head. Poor hair. Do you still want us to marry? My violet by a mossy stone. Blinking idiot, you mean, the voice said. It sounded more weary than accusing. That was wonderful. Thank you. All the signposts are there inside her head, outside her head, and yet she still goes ahead. Is this the first time she's admitted it to herself? Uh, it's not quite the first. We've had some... Um, uh, accounts of it earlier in the voyage. It's the first time she admits it to herself within the relationship that she's revisiting. And that voice becomes really the dominant um, pulse of the book until finally her own consciousness and the voice come together by the ending of the book. And that really is the resolution. I mean, it's incredibly common. Everybody here will have known that experience where... We do a thing against our own interests, but we persist in doing it anyway because we want the thing we're doing to be the right thing mm. to do. And also because our big sister is saying, you're doing the wrong thing, so you have <laughs> to prove her wrong. Well, what I found so fascinating as a reader of that book was that the voice is what the reader is feeling a lot of the time. And so you feel vindicated at the end when finally 
the heroine listens to you. Um, well, I hope. <laughs> Was that a particularly satisfying passage to write, to be able to articulate something that is so common to so many people, but in fact, like for Vi, remains a voice that is only in your head? I guess that links with my past career as a psychoanalyst because in a way what I was doing always was trying to get people um, to listen to their own voice. And to, to do that, you have to hear the voice first. Mm. I mean, it's amazing. You know, I talked about having multiple personality. Uh, but it's amazing how many le different levels we run on you know, at any one time. Um, and that voice that knows what we really want, what we really desire, which is at odds with you know, what our big sister desires or doesn't desire or our mother desires or doesn't desire or we ourselves desire or don't desire. That fundamental voice which is essential if we're going to, you know, be any kind of an authentic person. Um, that was really what I was trying to do when I worked as a psychoanalyst. So it was exciting to write that bit, yeah. And do you think that the impetus for storytelling some of the time is to do that, is to, to go where to places that you can't ordinarily admit to yourself that you want to go? Yeah, I suppose, I mean, Patrick, you probably agree with this, that that is our therapy, isn't it? We, we explore uh, elements that we kind of know about, but we only discover... I, I think it's, it's the reader's therapy, too, if yeah. you get it right, because I think it's about giving permission. You give permission to yourself to go, go into these, these forbidden places. Um, and one of the forbidden... And the reader is tiptoeing along beside <laughs> you. And one of the forbidden <laughs> places you've chosen is the love affair that was the love affair of their lives but didn't work out for reasons that they've never fully kind of gone yes. into. And you go back there, which I presume is a very, very common experience for a lot of people. I think a lot of people have had that, um, that re regret affair, the one, the one that was you were too young to realise what you might have lost, but precisely because you lost it when you were young, it was never tested. Um, and this is one of the nightmares with the internet. It's splitting up a lot of happy marriages mm. because what mother of four can compete with the memory of a 17-year-old. It's, it, it's so, not fair. But um, you actually go into the fantasy so, there. So I, allow, they do, they I, allow the, mm. I make the fantasy flesh. Um, and on one level, though, I was, I was also playing around with one of my favourite films, which is Brief Encounter. I wanted to play with that very English and, and very damaging reticence um, in affairs of the heart. We're, we're, we're so, we're, we're raised, or I was certainly raised, in a way that makes it very difficult to express yourself verbally. Um, and it was the not saying that kind of got them into trouble in the first place, yes. wasn't it? But what interested me as well was, was to show, and I, I often do this in my books, to show how the characters were, f were turned into those reticent people by their parents. So the, the, the bit I was thinking of reading is one that shows, that illustrates a, a, a part of that um, through a memory of, of Laura's father and their crucial failure to communicate at, at a key moment in, towards the end of his life. Would you um, read that for us? Yes, yeah, I, I should explain that um, Laura has a, an unconventional childhood. Um, not only are her parents naturists, and they encourage her to be one, but um, they're unmarried, although they pretend to be married, and they're, they're more or less communists as well. So it's a bit of a surprise to her um, in her mother's old age to discover that her mother has started attending Evensong at Winchester Cathedral on a regular basis. Can I just butt in for one second? Mm. Because I'm not sure if naturist is only a British term, ah, but it's nudist, nudist. here. So is, it translates, yes? Uh, so yes. We're, we're ever uh, reticent. So several, uh, <laughs> several, slightly blunt. several slightly illiterate reviews have muddled it up with, with naturalists. Yes, I noticed which, that. Which is, uh, <laughs> I noticed that. Un, unintentionally comic, in effect. Um, 
Bird watching nude. <laughs> It'll only raise your sails. <laughs> oh Lord. So yeah, so they have Laura Laura has steered her mother down to the cathedral for even song. At that time of the year, she enjoyed looking up from her magnificent seat to explore the farther reaches of vaulting and tracery with her eyes. In the winter months, there was a different pleasure to be had from the vast darkness of the church around them and the sense of the choir as a pool of light in a forest of nocturnal stone. The words, especially those of the Nunc Dimittis and the repeated references to night and stillness, the busy world is hushed, the fever of life is over. The inevitable identification of the end of the day with the end of life tended to bring on a curious fit of nostalgia or species of homesickness, a dwelling on chances past and friends lost that could make her tearful if she didn't guard against it. Tonight, inspired by her thoughts of his rejected furniture and the box of old photographs she had so casually discarded, she found herself thinking about her father and when she had last seen him alive. She touched a hand to her shirt pocket and was reassured to feel his picture in there. He had marked the early weeks of his voluntary redundancy by catching the Eurostar to visit her in Paris. It was a tremendous bother at the time as she was involved in a messy love affair with a divorced client who was trying to get serious just when she was preparing to ditch him. Her apartment was tiny, not suited to guests who needed a bedroom of their own. She slept on the sofa so that dad could have her room and gave up three days to show him the city which astonishingly he had never visited. She had never spent so long with him without her mother. And the things about him and her parents' relationship the visit threatened to reveal made her nervous and tetchy. There was a limit to how much sightseeing she could make him do, and at regular intervals they had to sit on park benches or at cafe tables, and he would talk. More disturbingly, he would ask direct questions, like, how was she? No, no but really, in herself. And did she have someone special at the moment? And then there would be heavy sighs, which she knew were partly his way of showing he knew she was holding back the truth from him, but also her cue to ask him things in turn. It was a cue she harshly overlooked, to talk brightly about what they should do next. Looking back, she wondered if he had already known he was ill, if he had been settling emotional accounts. The classic behavior for a living husband in such a position would surely have been to wring some kind of assurance from her that she would look after her widowed mother. Instead, he seemed to be implying that he had learned things sad lessons he wished he had known at her age, but she spent the visit parrying and deflecting his conversational advances and masking herself emotionally. It had been very odd. When there were three of them as a family, her instinct, her role almost, had always been to take his part, poor dad, overlooked, undervalued. But without her mother there as a mock adversary, so much brighter than either of them, so much more assured, the polarity shifted and she found herself reacting as though he were a sort of predator on her feelings. And then he dropped dead on an underground escalator only weeks after his visit. Of course, 
What he had been trying to say, she suspected now, was, are you lonely? I don't want you to be lonely because I still am, and it's a terrible thing. Her automatic view of her childhood, her account for others at dinner tables, was that she had been the interloper, the infant gooseberry, in a great unmarried love story. It was a story she still told herself because it was a comfort and required nothing of her, that he had come from the wrong side of the tracks and saved a brilliant woman from a stultifying future. From things she let slip, it was a story her mother told herself too, but the truth was possibly sadder, that he had indeed offered an escape route, but that once escaped into their unconventional menage, she left him behind. It was never pretended he was her intellectual equal. He never rose above the level of lecturer, and that at a lowly polytechnic. He was never invited to conferences, never asked to contribute articles to New Society or Tribune. For her mother, research was all. Her obsession with proving or disproving the existence of prions, for instance. Teaching was something she always regarded as a necessary evil, secondary to the formation and supervision of a team of research students. Whereas he loved his students, clearly, and relished his role as a sensible, avuncular mentor in their messy, risky lives. For him, they were undoubtedly the extra children he couldn't have, a demanding, exasperating extended family and being eased out of their midst by his employers must have been shattering to him, a huge bereavement. And now, her mother had all but erased him from the picture. He lived on in bits of Laura, of course, in the photograph albums, and oddly, in the one thing he had given Mummy beside an escape route, the freedom she felt in shedding her clothes. The anthem that evening was a chunk of the Brahms German Requiem, rendered into clumsily Teutonic English. How lovely are thy dwellings fair. Laura was just thinking how pootling the accompaniment sounded, reduced to an organ from the full, rich orchestration, when there was a loud sniff from Mummy, followed by a frantic scrabbling in pockets. She was doing her best not to cry. Another, fruitier sniff followed, Laura had a clean handkerchief on her and passed her that. Mummy took it. Her face was hidden by the outcrop of carved oak between them, but she patted Laura's thigh in thanks. Beautiful. Thank you very much. It strikes me that Laura is able to be much more honest with herself at this time in her life, sort of approaching middle age, and, and Vi the same. I mean, she's older than, um, than Laura. Do you think that, given your own ages, this is something that's especially easy for you to write now, that you could have written these books, these books that look back and reflect so much on the past, say, 10, 15 years ago? Can I just say something to Patrick mm. first, which is that I did grow up in the Communist Party. My father was a communist, and what you write about Laura's mother, Francis, is she called? Um, no. I can't remember now. Professor Jellicoe. <laughs> Professor Jellicoe. <laughs> anyway, yes. it's so Harriet, like Harriet. Harriet. It's so Francis. Another yeah, It's so like what happened to my father. It's extraordinary. Oh, funny. I mean, he at the end of his life. Did he starts sidling into church. Well, no, he requested a, a book of common prayer funeral service, mm. and he spent the last months of his life choosing hymns. It's just extraordinary when I read the book well, because I, I couldn't write that because it's too too close. Yeah. 
so no, we'll, we'll answer the question. <laughs> but I, but I, you know, I think I think you know, to answer the question, I, I I certainly couldn't have written. I don't know. I had a big change when I at forty. I I I, I seem to have a gear change and. Um, that's when you said you thought you were going to die. Yeah, well, no, no, I just, I just thought oh, I'd live long. I mean, I, I, I had a bit of a wake-up call. I think I read a biography of Proust and realised how young he was, and I thought, <laughs> oh, well, time to catch up. <laughs> and, um, and so I, I started shamelessly mining my, my family and its rich seams of neurosis and pain <laughs> and secrecy, and, um, and it's been hugely rewarding. Um, I can't, in some ways, I can't so wait for my mother to die so I can finally, <laughs> finally actually write about her honestly. I mean, poor woman, she thinks that she's every mother I write, and I keep saying, no, no, I'm waiting to die. <laughs> yes, I was going to say, hugely rewarding for whom? <laughs> well, she gets a certain amount of benefit from it. All her friends now think she had this very sexy affair with her brother-in-law, which she never did. So. <laughs> Sully, what about you? I, I think that, yeah, I think that I didn't start to write. I mean, my first novel, I was 50 when I published Miss Garnet's Angel, so I was wow. already quite elderly. <laughs> yeah, but, then you ha but you have I'm no youthful words to, be em words to be embarrassed by. I have this comet tale. I've, I've got children. Child, children <laughs> so, yeah, um, yeah I, I think that is part of the process of getting older, that you do have, um, with luck, an increased capacity for facing honestly the truth about your mm. more unpleasant actions and reflections, which is what's really going on in but that I passage think, of the But I think there's, al there's also a, a stillness that comes into later writing. I think you, you calm down. I know I'm, my early novels, which I'm very embarrassed by now, were so busy trying to be clever that they, they didn't, they avoided the pain. They're like a perfect illustration of what a neurotic does. <laughs> a clever neurotic, you're kind of not, you know, you're saying, let me entertain you so I don't cry. Um, and looking back, my early novels, the plots are full of pain, and I completely skate to skate over the surface. And now you're prepared to go there. And now I'm prepared to keep very still, let the book be very still, and have almost no plot, so I mm. can be free to dig. I um, think having no plot is a terribly good idea. <laughs> well, it, I, I always say this to creative writing students, that actually yes. the best plots will emerge yes, naturally absolutely. from the examination of character. No, I completely agree. I always let the characters make the plot. Mm. I never, ever plot. Because if you think about it, that's how our real-life plots emerge. Yeah. It's simply you, your, your psychology and someone else's brought sort together. Sort of ricocheting off one yeah. another. Well, yeah. yes, and, and it's... it's and accidents. You allow accidents. Well, I mean, they, the al they allow the accidents, mm. don't they? They, they do You're it. such an analyst. <laughs> <laughs> it's all they're doing. <laughs> Well, I, uh, yeah, but I think they do. They they meet each other. They fall out. They don't have the love affair you might have yes. predicted. They don't go off together, as you you know might have predicted. Your readers complain. Mm. I notice yours and mine both do. Yes, they get very cross with you. My, mine got very this. cross on the other side of you, and yours get very cross in this book. Mm. But we don't make everything. <laughs> Perhaps I'm giving something away. Sorry. No, no, no. It's a miserable ending. It's, a, it's, it's not miserable. It's real. There's well, a twist. Actually, There's no, a very yes. big it's twist. The so There's a big twist. I have, I have really? I've had to say to a lot of readers who've emailed me about it that I think she can do better and she will yes. when her mother dies. Oh, no, no, no. no. <laughs> no, no, no. Enough. You're, you're, you're giving it away. Can I ask, because I, I'm wanting to open this up to, for questions, but I want to ask one last question. Um, and that is um, another writer who's coming to the festival, Tom Rackman, said that um, his fear during the hardest days of writing was that he was simply toiling at rubbish. And that's uh, something that I hear from a lot of writers, you know, being in the midst of something, not knowing if it's any good at all, particularly before you've been published. And I'm wondering, in terms of impulses to write, what kept you going through that if you did indeed experience it? 
experience it all the time. I'd be very worried if I didn't. I think if I sat there thinking, God, this is brilliant, it would probably be rubbish. But in the but beginning, it, I you bet do, you didn't think that. Well, I think, no, I, I think you have to, um, you have, to have a, an element of mad self-belief because you are writing for yourself. You're not writing for readers. But you have to learn to... I think of her as the spiteful little girl. I, I think we all have one on our shoulder saying... Who's going to read this? Who, what makes you think anyone is interested? Some of in us this? have a whole crowd of them mm. standing around. Well, you, and you, it, there is a process of working through, and there are bad, bad weeks and good weeks, and then the bad weeks. I often think this is absolute drivel. But and, what and I, I still what don't quite. You, yeah, what's the nugget well, well, that keeps I think, you going? I think because of this, 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 this mad belief in your in your character. I, even if I think the book, if I think the book is no good, it's because I think I'm not getting at the truth. And by the time I start actually writing, I've built up the character in my mind to the point where I believe he or she has a story to tell. And it's my job is largely to report it as accurately mm. as I can. And to get it down. To get it down without, without waffle, without fat on the page. And, and it's about accuracy. And if, if, if I'm doubting it, it's usually because I'm, I'm worried I'm going, I'm going off the track or I'm... I'm putting in distractions that it shouldn't and be And so there. when you hear that voice loud enough, presumably it drowns out the spiteful little girl. Most of the time. <laughs> she's, <laughs> she's loud, is she? Yeah, the trick is to write out of doors, then she has to shout. <laughs> Sally? Yeah, I, I think it's like a love affair, actually. Uh, I think you have to fall in love. I mean, there are a lot of plots and characters and books I've started that I've, you know, it's been, it's been a one-night stand. <laughs> it looked promising. Is that your definition of a short story? Yeah. <laughs> just well, you've just published a very good collection of short stories, and I'm about to. So let's be careful about <laughs> the analogies, because <laughs> we'll look. One night, pretty, we'll can, look one night stands can be richly. Well, rewarding. we'll look very promiscuous, <laughs> uh, and I'm doing a few here. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's a love affair, and I think like any love affair, that's what takes me through. That I really fall in love with the. Character. Now that sounds soppy, and I don't mean in a romantic sense. I mean that the focus of my attention has to become more and more um, on this thing, this world, and not the other world in which I generally live and move and have my being. And it's like any love affair. I mean, sometimes you loathe the bloody thing, and you know you want to go back to your husband or your girlfriend or whatever it is. Um, and and some days it it's it seems like you know heaven on earth and then other days it's a matter of how you're going to pay the mortgage if you actually live together but it's that kind of it's got that kind of quality for me if it's not essentially a working love affair I don't finish the book and I mean I discard books I, I set them aside in a rather kind of profligate way um, and, and the achieved book the published book is the love affair that's gone through to some kind of resolution or conclusion it's, I think Patrick's right. I, I, I was going to question you when you said it's for yourself and not for the reader. I do want to communicate to readers. There's no doubt about that. But I think in the first instance, the relationship is between mm. me the first draft and the very, characters. I find my first draft is me and the characters. Yeah. And, and then, then it's yeah. something you want to share with... Well, for me, that's the, the essence, of the, the enormous pleasure of doing the rewrites. And they are a pleasure because you've, yes. you've proved to yourself, yes, I've had the love affair, it's all down there. But the pleasure then comes in the fine-tuning and, 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 and calculating what the effects will be on your reader. And, and also picking up things that, you, that are kind of implicit 
but you don't realise they're implicit till mm. you've got to the end that you can. Because the risk of stretching your, your analogy to death, in a way, what you want is for the reader to then have the same love affair. You want yeah. them to walk in your footsteps absolutely and to feel the same emotions. And part of the rewriting mechanism for me is fine-tuning those those key Making moments. Making sure the trigger points. Are yes, there. those key mm. moments. That, uh, and that's where I, I'm so shocked when you hear that certain distinguished writers, mentioning no names, refuse to be edited. Because it seems to me, unless you have a good editor yeah. or, or a really trusted reader or two, mm. um, you won't have, be able to test those mm. reactions on mm. anybody until it's too late. Mm. And sometimes it only means the placing of a certain word to make a whole scene be misread mm. emotionally. Or mm. you know, I completely agree about editing. I mean, mm. Being edited well is one of the great joys, isn't it? And it's we, you it and I have both had marvellous editors. Oh, yes. And, and, and we both loved. I have this wonderful editor who's now died. And Sally mm. and I are now both experiencing the same editor who is sort of new to us both. And it's, it's very scary. It's like an arranged marriage. And, <laughs> yes. um, see how our minds work. <laughs> <laughs> we can't get Everything's erotic. <laughs> Now, I did promise that we would open up this conversation mm. to all of you, and we have a roving microphone. Anna Canaris is the lady with the microphone there holding it up. If you have a question, would you raise your hand? Can I just say one, add one yeah. little thing? Sure. Patrick said, uh, you, you said, you've said a couple of times, we want, you, we want the readers to sh feel as we feel. I don't think that's right, because quite often readers will feel something differently from myself. And I think that adds greatly to the depth of the book. And I think you mm. probably feel that too. Well, yes, you, you do it's get, not a, it's you not get a parallel. You get those unexpected interpretations which, which show you your book has a life that you didn't intend. But even, even yeah. not even unexpected yeah. ones, ones that, that qualify or, or add to your, you know, I, I think at that point it becomes a fascinating Orgy. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, you, because we well, have no we have no control about what yeah. the readers bring to the book. So, yeah, yes, that's true. I think there was a gentleman right in the middle, Anna. Um, we can't see well. No, see so if you can um, just grab the mic and perhaps if you could just say your name to begin with and then your question. Thank you. And put lots of expression into your voice because we can't see your face. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the coaching, uh, Bruce Russell, and uh, this idea of therapy and therapeutic I think it's you know pretty comfortable to say writing that book was therapeutic but I wonder if you would ever write a book in order to actually do the therapy you know as an alternative to doing the therapy uh, would you write the book that's my question great question mm. I, I have to say my my agent quite honestly says he has an absolute horror of any of his novelists going into therapy because he, like me, thinks we're all basically ill. And, and he's worried that we'll be cured of the need to write. And I, I certainly find... I mean, I've, been, I've been doing it now for over 20 years, and, and I can see the same obsessions being aired again and again and again in my books in thinly disguised different forms. Um, so I can see I'm working stuff out in the books. But Is it successful? I'm still needing to write, so I'm not... It's, <laughs> it's clearly not, <laughs> luckily. <laughs> yeah, I, I would never write a book for therapy, and I've been a therapist for most of my adult life. Um, I also taught literature, but... Um, and I disagree with your agent mm. on many matters, but that one particularly... Well, you probably think that some, some novelists who need to be cured... So they can no, I think, <laughs> I think a successful therapist releases precisely the part in a person that is most creative. Mm. And it's not a matter of um, them being obsessions, but um, insights and 
preoccupations. No, I think I'd steer clear of a book that was written, except for the personal benefit of that person. I don't think that would have um, a universally good effect on a reader myself. I mean, if that, if that was its only purpose, it probably wouldn't be a very good book because it, would be, it wouldn't no. be sufficiently controlled to... No, that, that doesn't mean that there mightn't be a therapeutic benefit from writing the book for the writer, but that doesn't make it the sole point and purpose of the book. I mean, I, thi I think it, it would be a great pity if there was no therapeutic benefit in, in doing work, you know, if there was no enjoyment to be had out of it. There'd really be no point. Do you think that the, the more novels one writes, the, the, I mean, the, the better you know yourself? Do you think you get to know yourself through your characters? Mm, I don't know about better. <laughs> Wider. Wider. <laughs> this is a question for Sally. Um, I've read a number of your books, and I feel that uh, this could mean my response as a reader, but there's a certain amount of redemptive quality or there are lessons for the characters to learn along the way or even the readers to learn along the way. Is that something that... Um, a deliberate intention on your part for for the readers to yeah actually learn something yeah that's a a very a very good question and a hard one to answer because i don't want to sort of set myself up as some kind of guru with um advice about how to live you know which is disguised in the books i write uh, i guess that any book will carry with it something of the writer's philosophy and sensibility and inevitably, because I worked all that time as a, as a Jungian uh, analyst, and I think Jungians work in a rather different way from Freudians or other kinds of analysts. Um, you know, I am essentially an optimist. I do essentially believe that most traumas, not all, but most can be got over, that you know, life is long and there are, you know, m many twists and turns. She, I, sound like, I do sound like a tin pot <laughs> guru now. But um, I think that the redemptive element in my own philosophy will inevitably, inevitably get through into the books. And, you know, again, much of my life has been spent with people who, uh, who used to come to me in a state of, of anxiety or trauma or loss of some sort. And... For the most part, not inevitably, not always, by no means, but for the most part, things would alter for them as we talked about what had happened to them and what their lives meant. So I, I am a great believer in, in the possibility of redemption, but I'm aware that can sound horribly glib and a bit banal, but it is a theme that people pick out of the books, and I guess that comes from my particular way of looking at life. When you uh, start a book, both of you, it seems that you start with a character and build on that, and that character or other characters um, then define the way the book goes. Supposing I give you a plot with no characters, will you be able to write a book about that? And also, if you've, if you've got a great idea to save the world, um, how would you go about that one? <laughs> I'd, I'd say that was one question each. Um, I, 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 I couldn't begin to write a book if all I had was a plot, um, because I, I don't think I'd be interested in the plot. It's, it's, it's funny, I, I, I think I'd wait for the film, because I, I, I love films that are all plot, 
Um, mm. And the character, if they're well cast enough, you don't need good writing necessarily to show what the character's like because the actor will provide it. But it wouldn't get my juices flowing. Um, no, I'm afraid you've 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 <laughs> hit a low place with us there. We're not good on plot. <laughs> don't we, do plot. Sorry. We, well, we do do plot, but but <laughs> yes, no, no, we don't do plot. Our characters do plot. Yeah. I couldn't do. I couldn't. Well, I probably could, if it was a you know, a party game or something. Mm. I probably could do it. It'd be very po- very boring. Um, as for saving the world, help. I don't think books can save the world, but I think books certainly help create the kind of society we might want to live in. I think books can yes. do an enormous amount of good, and it's interesting that totalitarian regimes always begin by burning books. Mm. So I don't know if that's quite what you meant, but I think that the reading of books creates a kind of unity and amity among people, and you can see it in book clubs, which, after all, is what we have here today. It, it, it creates depr- a kind of community and of mind. Don't you find it deeply depressing that whenever a world leader also accidentally chooses to be photographed holding a book, it's never a novel. It's, it's always... It's we've always we've got a prime minister who's just written a book, or co-written a book. Did you know? No. It's a children's book. <laughs> anyway, we won't go. Let's do <laughs> <for> another time. <laughs> well, Australia's a very civilised country. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and any final thoughts that, that you wanted to add? Anything you didn't get said tonight, either of you? I'll just say I think that the telling of stories and the listening to stories is um, incredibly important part of human activity. I mean, as a psychoanalyst, which I, I promise you I'm not now, actually what I was doing was listening to people's stories and the telling of the story, which changed from day to day. And my listening to the story is really, I think, what made the difference. And I think there's something absolute. I mean, I believe everything's story. Science is a story because it changes all the time. History is certainly a story because everybody has a different one. There's that lovely line in a Barbara Gowdy novel, Mr. Sandman, yes. um, called The Truth is Only Aversion. Yeah. Or The Truth is Only Aversion. And yes, um, we all present ourselves. Whenever I work with writing students who, who are starting, they've never done any fiction before, I always start by just getting them to, to tell me three things about themselves. And they can never stop at just three because we've all got these stories. We've all got a story. Um, we haven't all got a novel in us. Um, a lot of us have stories in us, but a lot of us need a ghostwriter. But I do, <laughs> I, d- I, do <laughs> I do think that Sally's right. That it's, it comes down to stories and the way you present them. And, and I'm, I'm also very aware that events like this, we start sounding as if all we do is write. Um, we isn't, re- that, isn't it? We, I, I, <laughs> don't, I don't you sit in your converted you have to bullshit read, in You have to read yeah, enormously you have to read. all the time. And, yeah. and I'm constantly aware that my reading is what fine-tunes my writing, and it's, it's a constant process. And so actually, that's so. what I say to writing students. I don't do much um, teaching of creative writing because I'm not sure I can teach it. But what I principally do is say read, and then I bring passages from great novels mm. that I think are really important. Demoralise them all. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, actually, I don't think... <laughs> <laughs> I think but learning yes, to I, read I, is, the, is, is yeah. absolutely crucial to learning mm. to write. Mm. Thank you so much for tonight's discussion, um, for your thoughtfulness and for your great readings and writings. It's been a pleasure having you here. Would you thank them, please? Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this podcast recorded at the 2010 Perth Writers' Festival. If you'd like to hear other sessions from the festival, go to abc.net.au slash perth slash writersfestival.